0: The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Well, good morning. I feel like uh, I would be amiss if I didn't say just for a moment. I'll probably say this again tonight because it'll be a little bit different group here, but if I didn't say that I wanted to thank you for allowing me to be here with you the past few weeks, uh, I, I hate that Jeff has been ill. I hate that he's not felt well. I hate that he's been exposed or whatever you call that, and it's very unfortunate. But it has been a great, uh, great opportunity for me to be here with you uh, on these three weeks. So I call that a regular basis. That's regular enough, and I look forward to any time in the future when I might be able to be back. I can remember, it was a little bit over 10 years ago, just barely over 10 years ago, um, I was sitting at the house, and my cell phone rang, and it was James Rogers. And James told me a little bit about you guys, and he said, they're just kind of getting getting their feet off uh, on the ground and getting moving, and they're going to need a little bit of help. Would you be willing to help these folks out? And I thought to myself, man, alive, uh, James, that's Georgia. That's a uh, that's a, that's foreign land. And I don't know about that. I don't mind a day here or there. But I have certainly learned it was worth the drive and always is and always great to be here. And I'm thankful to James. I'm thankful to any of you here who were involved and in allowed me to continue to come back again and again. It may get old, uh, for you, but it does not get old for me. So thank you very much for that go ahead and take your Bibles if you would you're going to need them open them with me, the book of first Thessalonians when you get there go basically back to a part of our scripture reading as we used a moment ago first Thessalonians chapter 1 we're going to be examining incrementally today piece by piece basically verses 1 through 10 okay now we won't get all the way through that and we may or may not call it off at the end of this hour we may pick up this evening I can't tell you, uh, that absolutely for sure, but we are going to be examining this text and kind of while you're flipping there, I, I think most of you are already there, let me ask you, and you don't have to answer out loud, just kind of think about it. If I were to tell you that I knew of someone right now who's suffering, uh, someone who is having some symptoms, if you will, maybe such as they've got an upset stomach, they're running a fever, they've got aches and pains, they've got some muscle cramps, they've got a headache, And maybe even added to that, I might add that they have having a lot of difficulty breathing. What would you assume might be wrong with those people given, I'm going to say it again, the current situation? You might immediately say, well, they probably ought to go be tested for COVID because symptomatically it sounds like uh, they've got some, if not all, of those symptoms. And that very well may be the case. And I suppose if, if that person that did have those symptoms went and they were tested, They would more than likely come back positive, and they would more than likely then be quarantined at the least. They might be treated in some way. They may be sent home to rest. They may be brought in the hospital to be attended to, something like that. And that would probably be altogether true. We're being told, and you can agree or disagree with that. I'm not taking a side on this. However, we're being told that someone could have COVID-19, coronavirus, and have no symptoms whatsoever and still, listen carefully, and still be contagious. Now that very well may be true. I'm not making an argument for or against, but it just seems strange, it seems odd, it seems different compared to everything else we're exposed to, which is considered to be highly contagious, that someone can actually be sick, have no symptoms whatsoever, and then still at the same time be contagious. Now I don't mention that to try to argue a fact or even to bring up that dreaded virus that we're all uh, sick and tired. As a matter of fact, I'll show you, I'm about fed up to hear with hearing about it. I hope everybody who is sick gets well and I hope we move on with life. But I think it makes an illustrated point. Similar to most things we deal with, but very different from COVID. If you are a Christian, a child of God, you will not be contagious unless you are symptomatic. Think about that. If you are a Christian, a child of God's, a member of the Lord's church, that's all talking about the same person. It will be impossible to be contagious as in somebody else may catch it from you unless you are symptomatic. And so if you want to look at this context here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1-10 to 10, from one side or the other, you might say that this is something like the symptoms of the saved. You might say that this contains, and it's really the more way I'm looking at it today, this is a description of what a contagious Christian would look like. And so the way that I view this text is similar to the way that we ought to be viewing the whole Bible for that matter, particularly the New Testament to which we directly follow in our time. We ought to be looking into this word here as God says it in James, in the letter written by James, as a mirror. And we ought to be making comparisons between what is said here on these pages and the descriptions and the commands and the demands, the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots, and asking ourselves constantly, reviewing our own lives and determining if we resemble the pictures that we see here. If the things that are found on these pages, no matter which one you're on, if they represent and resemble and bring a likeness to our lives, that's the type of comparison we ought to be making. As a matter of fact, we are told in Scripture that we ought to be measuring ourselves, judging ourselves, whether we be in the faith. And so we're sort of kind of going to do that this morning. We're going to use the Thessalonian brethren to represent to us what a contagious Christian looks like, what a Christian who has symptoms, who is symptomatic looks like in order not only that they might be saved themselves, but Lord willing, we hope and pray very simply that somebody else catches it. Somebody else gets from us what we've already got. So let's notice the reading there. It was read the first five verses. At least were read just a moment ago. I'm reading from the King James. It reads very similar to the ASV that was read. Here it says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus and the church of God, which are the Thessalonians, which are in God and great, which are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Paul says, and we give thanks to God always, verse two, for, for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love and patience and hope. In our God, and uh, I'm sorry, in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God. Now, look at this phrase here. This is what I'm keying on, beginning in verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now, this is kind of a precursory, and that's a big old word. Mumford folks don't actually talk like that, by the way. But it's kind of a precursory, a beginning point that you have to establish. Number one, that one who is going to be a contagious Christian, one that's going to have these symptoms of the saved, however you want to look at that. Number one, they have to be elect. Now, a lot of times I can make a C for myself. I don't know how to do an E in silence. They can be elect. And what I mean by elect is exactly what the Scripture said. It talks about these brethren. We won't review all that we read because I I would take too much time. But he says, uh, Paul says he's speaking to the brethren, he's speaking to the church that is in Thessalonica, who are the church of God, at the same time they're the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is thankful for them. He is prayerful for them. He is enthused about knowing them. And he gets down to a point of saying, here's why I appreciate you. It's because of the work of faith that you have, the labor of love that you possess, and the patience of hope that you represent, because of the fact, verse 4, knowing, being resting assured in the fact that you are of the elect or the election of God. Now, we're about to embark on a season. And I mean by that, let's see, where are we at right now? Are we, August, okay, August, so September, October, November, three months. In about three months, you and I will be asked, if we're willing to do that, to go to the poll and elect new officials, whether it be state, local, federal, whatever, things like the president, things like congressmen, things like house member, whatever. We're going to be asked to be part of an election. How do you plan on electing those officials? It's not political to say this, but how do you plan on electing those officials? Well, a true election would involve you and I, if we decide to, we call it going to the polls, if we decide to go to that voting booth or whatever it is, and we decide to fill out those forms or to check those boxes, we are hopefully going to elect those people based on their traits, their characteristics, the things that they stand for and the way they possess themselves, right? That's what a proper election is about. It's not about walking into a building and randomly, out of nowhere, checking a series of boxes blindfolded with one eye on the back of your head and then turn around and hand it in or have you do that and saying that's who I want to serve me. That's who I want to rule over me. It's not about that. It's about electing people based upon their traits their characteristics, uh, their morals, whatever other, other things you would put with that. Now, when we read about biblical election, and it's not just here, this is just a term there. Again, verse 4, verse Thessalonians chapter 1 says, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Peter talks about the election He talks about the elect. Paul talks in the Ephesian letter about those who are elected. Uh, Peter also talks about those who are predestinated. A lot of times when religious people read terms like that, they immediately stand back and say, there it is, here's proof that at some point in time, God decided to determine that he was going to save this man and cause this woman, I'm pointing everywhere, to be lost. He's going to pick and choose, and he's going to elect those who are saved and elect potentially those who are lost, based on, out of thin air, no thought, no consideration. And if you are of the elect, you're of the greatest group that ever lived, and you are I'll just use the word you may as well use if you're talking like that. You're lucky. But if you're outside of that, that's unfortunate. That God did not elect you. Well, listen. The election of God, whether it be this term right here, election, it be the term elect, it be the term predestinate, or predestination, or predestination, any of these terms carries with the idea of God before time. As a matter of fact, we're told in Scripture that God before the foundation of the world chose us. It's the idea that God set down criteria and God set down characteristics and God said if this person is obedient and they meet these qualifications and these traits and these characteristics and have these morals and these standards and they're faithful to them and God has set all of those things up in front of this and if they meet all of that, then they will be elected. That's Bible election. And I only say that because I cannot be or no one could be a contagious Christian or be a Christian at all for that matter. First saved, they be saved. First saved, they be elected. We've got to be among the elect. And so Paul first off tells these brethren, he tells them a lot before that really, but first major point that stands out here in this verse, verse 4 he tells them they are elect. Number two, not only that, you keep up the reading there in verse 5, and this is where we uh, got, into, or got to or ended up last, uh, just a moment ago with the Scripture reading. He said, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in the power of the Holy Ghost. Watch this phrase here. In much assurance. As you know the manner of men that was among you for your sake. For ye became followers of us, verse 6, and of the Lord. And having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. Now I want to go back and key there, it's in verse 5, on the phrase there, in much assurance. What does it mean to have assurance? The idea of having assurance carries with the idea of being confident or like the root word of it, being sure about something. Okay? Now, to have confidence or to be sure about something, it's very easy for us to understand on the surface in our life, right? Hopefully, we're all good people, we're all moral people. And so, if someone walks up to me and says, Jim, I want to let you know after services, I'm going to go and do such and this, I'm going to do this. Or I'm going to do that. Maybe someone says, here's what, here's what mine will be. I promise you, if I have a half a chance, when I get home, I'm going to take a nap. Now, my children don't believe that <laughs> at all. But I can say, I'm going to take a nap. And I would say that, and hopefully you would understand that. And if you knew me, you'd know I would. I was raised Sunday afternoon nap was part of the day. But you could have some assurance. But the problem with that is that's not actually as sure as things could be. Things could change. Things might have to be adjusted, adopted, moved around. Schedules might be changed. I may get home and this this has come up and that situation has arisen and it doesn't happen. The word here that is being used, however, and, and it reads in the King James speak at least, as having much assurance. That Greek word means to be absolutely, unquestionably confident. So what is it about these people? Well, first of all, verse 4, we learn that they're contagious because they are of the elect. They have the election. Secondarily, we learn here these people are great because they're also established. Established. Matter of fact, if you want to look at it this way, back when we used to actually thumb through the paper versions of Webster's Dictionary, you a lot of times would see, you would look up a word and you would see a definition. That would be called the primary definition. You could look beneath it and see some secondary definitions that applied themselves just as much depending on situations. So this word we're looking at, it's actually one Greek word to make up two English words. Much assurance carries with the idea of being absolutely completely confident in something but it also carries with it secondarily the idea of someone who has their feet glued or planted, we would say concreted, to the ground. And that's who these people are. The brethren in Thessalonica are, are, are of a people, this congregation, even though they were young, you've got to look at the dating of the book and, and such as that, and you know that they're young as far as the church being established in the early 30s and, and the time of the writing and such, but nonetheless, they're young, but they're established. Their feet are fixed. They're in a position already spiritually where they're not going to be easily moved about. And why is that? Well, if you look at some of the characteristics about these people, you notice some of them written there in verse 5 and 6. I'll reread it. For our gospel came not unto you. Watch this phrase here. Came not unto you in word only, but as the power of the Holy Ghost. And so what caused them first and foremost to be assured or to have assurance in who they were, to be established as a people? Because when the gospel came to them, it came to them in word. But he says there, not just word only, not just word of mouth, not just I heard uh, someone said or I read somewhere. It came to them with that much assurance that is based upon, number one, the fact that they receive that word. You keep up the reading there in verse 6. We read across this, for ye became followers of us, and of the Lord, watch that word, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Ghost. That word received, and I know I've mentioned this before. If I've ever taught anything, and I would assume I have, from the book of James, you know that when we get in the book of James, especially the first, uh, well, the middle to latter section of chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, you start learning about how those people the ones to whom James writes, the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, early church, very early church, how they receive the word of God with gladness. These people right here in Thessalonica, they receive the word in a very peculiar way. Again, I know I've said this, so I'll move very quickly with it, but there are two words oftentimes that are translated in our English language, translated from the Greek, that are translated as the word receive or received with the E-D on one of those words is a Greek word that sounds like lombano. We're going to see that word later, probably like in six months. It's, on, it's like verse nine ten. But it, it looks like the word lambano, and what lombano means in a nutshell, it means snatch it up. Any of you ever order anything online nowadays? Some of us. Most all of us do to some point. I order a good bit of stuff online, too much stuff online. Sometimes I'm very excited about receiving that. And I've got a favorite UPS man. His name is Willie. I like him because he's the one that serves my house. I like him because he comes every time he comes. He comes at 4.30 on the dock. And I run to the truck and meet him. And every time Willie hands me a package, I reach up and I say, Thank you, Mr. Willie." And I pull it and I snatch it and I run back in the house. And sometimes I look down and I say, oh, Jennifer Murrell. And I kind of, you know, wouldn't mind. The word that is used right here is similar to that, but there's a secondary word. The word received can be lobano to snatch, but a better word is the word decamai, which we will see later on in verse 9 or 10, that means to draw in carefully. To hold on to to grasp to 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 bring with much care and much concern that's the way we ought to receive the word of god now there should be some excitement we're going to mention that there should be a sense in which, if we have an opportunity, and say, oh, I got, I got, I'm taking a moment right now and I'm going to read the Word. I, I can't wait to get what's on these pages. And you're just snatching information off as fast as you can read and you're excited and enthused about it. But much more than that, you and I, as we study the Word of God, if we're Christians, ought to be looking at that Word diligently and carefully in such a way as to just take it and just draw it in and hold on to it. And that's actually the word here for received. It's decalmite. It means to carefully grasp and to draw in. So what does that tell me about these people? First of all, it tells me these people are established and the way they got to be established, the way they found the much assurance in their life is by receiving the Word of God. Number two, and we're going to go across the page. We're not going to flip or fly. Well, you may have to flip. I'm not going to have flips on the other side. But go from chapter one here where we are, go over to chapter two. There's something that really helps to establish them and to cause them to be in much assurance. And it's found in chapter 2 and verse 13. Look at this. Chapter 2 and verse 13 says, For this cause we thank God without ceasing, because when ye... What's the next word there? Because when you receive the word of God, which ye have heard, you received it. Watch this. Not as the word of men, but as it is the truth, the word of... Of God, which effectually worketh in you also that believe. Now there are two times the word received. We've already seen it right here in verse number uh, number six, but there are two times in chapter two and verse thirteen where the word received. And this is where you learn about those two Greek words we just mentioned. The very first word here, and I'll read it in its phrase here: "For this cause we thank God without ceasing, because when you receive, when you snatch the word of God up." which you heard, you grasp it, or you received it, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. The thing that caused these brethren to be so established, so assured, to stand in much assurance concerning their condition, concerning their salvation, was simply the fact that when they received this word, the same word we're so blessed to have bound and printed for us, make it so easy in our own languages to read, the thing that made it so great was they looked down at these pages. Of course, then it was more being taught, and then it was more maybe if they were very, very fortunate to receive a handwritten scribal copy copy, which would have been rare. But they said, that's the word of God. That's not the word of men. That's not the word of men. That's not man's suggestion. That's not man's good advice. That's not man's ideas or thoughts or theories. That's the word of God. Now this seems a little bit random right now, and I know there are not that many here that are in this age range, but we've got uh, grandchildren. Many of, uh, many of you had grandchildren in this shape, have had children in the past. But as we're about to embark on sending our children back to school, there's a lot to be concerned about, a lot to be worried about, again, with our current situation. But the most concerning thing that they need to be, parents and, I, and I, all of us need to be concerned about, is what they're learning in school and how they receive what they learn. I've had people before tell me, you know, and I'm not, I'm not offended by this at all, and I do see the need for a lot of what they're talking about. They say, uh, so you, you send your kids to public school?" And I say, "Yeah, actually, you know, we do. Our, you know, our schedule and my health, and you know, we just, we're just not ready for the homeschool side of things." And, and they say, "Boy, they, you know, they being taught a lot of stuff there, this, it's bad stuff, and and you know, the evolution and all." Uh, I agree, I agree. And it's awful. It's terrible, the exposure that, that children, uh, even, even young adults get, even more so in college. That's, that's terrible. But here's the thing we have to do. This is this free thrown in because we're here. We teach our children and grandchildren and potentially even maybe in some situations great-grandchildrens, our friends, kids, whoever we get involved with, we remind one another that it doesn't matter the stacks. Can I borrow a couple? I'll just borrow two. I only touched two. It doesn't matter the stacks of books that they're asked or maybe enforced to read in school that teach garbage that teach all types of things that are totally against, backside opposite of what God teaches, if they learn at some point, it needs to be early. And we have to continue on it as adults to know, it doesn't matter what I read in these volumes, in these libraries full of books of false information, if I know assuredly that this is different... I'm okay. Now I have been upset before. My children have come home and said, you know, they don't, especially younger, don't know any better, Daddy. You know, Cameron comes home and said, Daddy, did you know that the uh, dinosaurs came from birds? And look, son, they came from God. But our book said that's a different kind of book. That book was written by some person. Some man, some woman, someone who had intention, someone who was confused, someone who's looking for something interesting. This is the Word of God. One of these books are always right, while the other just might be. One of these books is based on absolute fact by the creator of the universe. These other books are based upon someone's ideas. You see, the wonderful thing about the brethren at Thessalonica that made them to be established, that is the word much assurance, is the fact that they received the word of God, yes, but also they respected the word of God in that when they received it, they said, hmm, this is God's word, it's not man's. That's the confidence I have. Now look at the next verse there. You're in chapter 2. If you've stayed across the page there, look in verse 14. It tells us a lot more about that. As a matter of fact, they received it not as the word of men, but as the word of God. Verse 14 says, For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which is in Judea, in Christ Jesus. For ye also suffered like of these things of your own countrymen, even as ye have of the Jews. What is that? Well, when they received the word of God, Key to this is not only did they receive it, they respected it, but they responded to it. Paul tells those brethren, you responded to this. You took this word and you became followers of it. Now that's the great divide between a good, honest, faithful, we'll use my term, contagious Christian and one who's not. And this could be my life in a mirror, but more and worser than that. And I said worser. Reflected out for you to see. You just can't get it out of some folk. It's the fact that if I'm not responding to God's Word, if God's Word, let's say it simply, if God's Word is not changing my life and the way that I live, I ain't got it. I, I just don't have it. And if you catch something from me that you think is God's Word and I don't have it, then you ain't got it. Now that's the unfortunate part of the whole religious world outside of the Lord's church. There are people who have something. They have got it. The signs seem to be there. The symptoms seem to be there. But the problem is they caught the wrong thing. Because they caught it from somebody who didn't have what they needed. And that person caught it from somebody who wasn't God. So these people, number one, they were elect. Number two, they were established. Number three, they were also enthusiastic. Go back to chapter one. We, we started the reading into a new section now. Kelly stopped off in verse five, which I asked him to do so. Verse six, picking back up and reading down a little bit. It says about these people, and ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word with much affliction with the joy of the Holy Ghost so that, you could put in there in order that, but so that, watch it, ye were examples, now that's King James speak for example, ye were examples to us, to all all that believe in Macedonia and in Archaea. Watch it now, verse 8. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Archaea, watch this, but in every place, your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. What is that a characteristic of? Now, actually, be two come from these same verses. But number one, that is a characteristic, a contagious thing. Enthusiasm. In two thousand and ten, we had been uh, been living in Philadelphia, Mississippi, preaching over there for five years. At that point. Hadn't been home in about eight years by that point because I'd moved from Memphis and then you know, whatever. But anyway, we decided to move back home to Munford, little Munford, Alabama. And when we did, when we immediately moved home, we made the decision to go and worship with the Ironiton Church of Christ, not the Munford Church of Christ where I grew up when my dad's an elder, but we worship with the Ironiton Church of Christ uh, that's just what we chose. Our house was a little closer that direction. It was more for us to do, it seemed like. I, I was actually helping out with that congregation. Yeah, whatever. Finally, one night, we came over to Munford for a gospel meeting or something like that. We showed up and I walked in the foyer. Munford's got a large foyer. It's uh, not as deep as this, but as wide as this. And as soon as I come in the door, I heard someone say, Jim Merle. And I thought, my lands." I turned around. Of course, I'm in a familiar place. I turn around and I see this guy I don't think I'd ever seen. Big fella. Six four or five. Over 300 pounds. He had his hand stuck out and I promise you it looked nothing like a hand. I mean, it was whoop. Choke you down between two fingers. You know, that kind of thing. He reached out, and when I came up, not knowing who he was yet, I saw this big gomer pile goofy grin, and he reached and grabbed my hand and did that move where they pull you in and fling their arm around you, and I'm not kidding, and I weighed at the time about 180. He picked me up and set me down. And he started telling me, I love you preaching, I love you family, I love your daddy, I love you mama. And I thought, that'd be good, but I don't know if I love you yet because I don't know who you are. And he said, my name's Jeff Jemison. Some of you have met Jeff Jemison. And I'm telling the truth about his hands, I promise you. Anyway, fast forward a little bit. I thought, this guy is enthusiastic. And I learned about him. He, He was enthusiastic about everything. Even then, that conversation ended with him saying, praise God, you're here. Now, you don't hear that much in the church. You should, but you don't hear it enough. The brethren here, it said about him, I'll reread it, said they were examples, examples to those that are in Macedonia and Archaea. These people were enthusiastic about what they had done. You know that because they were being seen by other people. The preceding verse said they received the word in much affliction with, look at that word, joy of the Holy Ghost. So they had seen the Word of God even though it had been delivered in a difficult time, a tough time when there was a lot of persecution, a lot of tribulation, a lot of challenges. They received that Word with joy and that joy could be seen. Now there's two things I want you to notice about this kind of as a subheading. They were contagious because they were enthusiastic. Number one, the enthusiasm has to be real. I still use the example of meeting this guy, Jeff Jemison. When I first saw him, I thought, ain't nobody that happy. He's that happy. He's that enthusiastic about everything. But not only does it have to be real, you have to know about that enthusiasm as well. It has to be recognized. If I'm going to be a Christian, if I'm going to be a child of God's, if I'm going to be the type of Christian that's contagious so others might catch it—if you want to say it that way—they got to recognize what it is I got. They can't say, "Well, he must be happy because he just, you know, he just made a million dollars on the stock market." No, that can't be it. Well, he's probably happy, you know, because his favorite team won the game. <laughs> that's not it. He's probably happy because he's about to eat his favorite food. That's not it. He has joy because he has Jesus in his heart. He has joy because he has a relationship with God that most people never get, never have. Now we could break that down a little bit farther, but we won't for time's sake. So number one, these people are elect. Number two, these people are established. Number three, these people are enthusiastic. Number four, same verses that we just read, these people are evangelistic. It's said about them, to reread that part of it, they were examples, verse 7, to all of, watch it, to all that believe in Macedonia and Archaea. Now, we took a course when I was in the Memphis School of Preaching called Bible Geography. And although I grew up being a history buff and I enjoyed geography and social studies, when I took that one, I didn't like it. Because I ain't ever heard of none of these places. But it mattered. Macedonia and Archaea are not like Waco and Tallapoosa. They're not like Munford and Talladega. Or even more than that, Mumford and Ironic. They're not two cities that bump up against each other and share a border. Where like in our area, you can actually attend the Mumford school system even though you live on the north side of the road instead of the south. There are children in our county that go to one school or another depending on which side of the street they live on. That's, that's not Macedonia and Archaea. Macedonia and Archaea are 200... Miles apart. And I'm saying these people were evangelistic because it says here very clearly that they were examples in Macedonia and Archaea. Now the thing is, Thessalonica is not in Macedonia or Archaea. What it's saying is these cities and these people have been affected by the Thessalonian brethren, Thessalonians, who live up to as much as 200 miles away. Now, I should have done a little Google search. I don't know what's 200 miles from here. Atlanta's not 200 miles. It's not near that. It's, it's a lot closer than that. Maybe uh, be, how far is Valdosta? It's another town I've been to. It's on down there. It might be 200 miles right around. That would be like people in Valdosta who have never heard the gospel at all. Never ever thought about it. In a day now, remember, when they didn't have internet, they didn't have TV, they didn't have radio, they didn't have email, they didn't have any of that, saying, hmm, I heard about God from a fellow who's from Waco. And I hear there's a great congregation of the Lord's Church in Waco, Georgia. That's just a picture of what happened. Now, Paul adds to this, and all I can do is say that the inspiration caused Paul to be truthful and honest about it. He says that they were examples in Macedonia and Archaea, and he says, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Archaea, but also in every place your faith to God, word is spread abroad. What does that mean about these people? They were evangelistic. Everywhere they went, they shared the gospel itself with the people around them. Now that might involve me going from city to city to city, like Paul went from city to city to city. It might have just involved, hey, me telling someone in my city about the gospel and having them to be uh, convinced, convicted, and converted to the gospel and then having them go to the next city. And then they teach, and then them go. If you want a pattern for evangelism, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2 is it. Teach others that they may teach others also. I don't have to go to every person on earth. I need to teach the one I can teach. And then who teach the one he can teach? And then they'll teach the ones they can teach. These people were evangelistic. Now, for time's sake, we'll call it right there. There were more characteristics about these people. If you want to jot them in your mind or on your uh, notepad, if you have one, number next, they like likely were not only evangelistic, they were energetic. So these people were elected. They were enthusiastic, uh, established. They were enthusiastic. They also were evangelistic. They were also energetic. That's verse 9, 10, and then you can see that back up in verse 3. And then finally, and this one we do want to mention as we close, these people were also, this is important, expectant. Just read verse 10. to wait for his son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. To wait. The idea of waiting there is they had an expectation. They had a confidence. They had a level of, I know this will be to them. So very similar to what every invitation is about. Do I expect to one day See God in judgment. Do I expect that? Better than that, do I expect to see God in judgment on the positive of things to be able to spend my eternity with Him in heaven? Do I expect that? Do I expect that? You see, the truth about life is, and the truth about death, and the truth more so about eternity is only divided by our response to our Lord. By us hearing the Word of God, which we've only read a small smidgen, a portion of such, but by us hearing the whole of the Word of God. By us believing in that, that's the idea of having faith in, trust in, leaning on, relying on. By being willing to look at the situation that God has laid out and to understand that, yes, I have to change my life from whatever state it's in. I have to look away from the world and look toward God in repentance. Be willing to confess Jesus' name as the Lord of us all and confess Him not only with our mouths but to the people around us and the lives that we live. Being willing to be baptized because that's what God commanded. Not because it makes as much sense as someone might argue that it does or does not but because it's what God said. There are a few things in life that if I had it, I'd want to share. I wouldn't want to be contagious. But in this light, we must. The world is dependent on us. If you're here this morning you're not a Christian, we invite you to do the things that God has laid out, the things that I just described, to be obedient to God. And if you're here this morning you are a child of God, you may be more like me in understanding that, you know what, the way I've been living... the way I've been acting, performing, the way I've been talking, walking. Not only has not changed me enough, it'll change no one else. Come to God through prayer and repentance this morning. While together we stand and sing this chosen invitation song.